Today we want to move into the second half of Romans chapter 7. We saw in Romans chapter 7 verses 1 to 6 and we stayed there for a number of weeks that legalism is not the answer. Legalism is not how you come to know Christ by trying to keep a list of commandments and it is not how you become more like Christ and please God. The answer is not legalism, but we don't want to throw out the law altogether. What is happening right here is that Romans chapter 7 is basically Paul's expanded commentary. Often in the, in the scriptures, they'll say something and then they'll come back later and expand on it more. Romans chapter 6 is really Paul's expanded commentary on how he ended in chapter 6 where he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under what now? Grace. And in Romans 7, he's going to expand on that. What does he mean? What do you mean you're not under law, but under grace? In summary, he's telling us that the law can't deliver us from sin. The law cannot deliver you from sin. The the law doesn't help you. The law doesn't rescue you. The law doesn't empower you. And the law doesn't change you. But there's one thing the law does really, really well. That's why you don't want to throw it out and say, oh, we don't need it. The law can expose you. And show you your great need for a Savior and drive you to Christ. Drive you to Christ. That's what it does really, really well. And that's the story in in chapter 7, verses 7 to 25 now. Now that Paul's established that we're no longer ruled by sin or ruled by the law, he goes on to describe what might surprise you. The ongoing battle and war internally that still remains for a believer against sin. There is still a very real battle. I want you to follow along in Romans chapter 7 as I read verses 7 to 25. And you'll find today, I know I say this all the time, I want you to have a Bible, I want you to see it for yourself. But here's a perfect example. This is going to be a passage that if you just sat there and you tried to listen your way through this, it would be very hard. It's a hard passage. Far better that you sit there and you see words with your eyes and you hear my voice. This is an example where you want to see the scriptures for yourself. It'll help you to get this. So if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, turn there to Romans 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's been knocking the law so much and telling us what it can't do, what it can't do, what it can't do, what it can't do. Don't try to do it with this. You you might draw the conclusion, well, is it bad then? Do we just need to throw it out? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. See, The law gives sin its power. It's only because of the the law that you begin to see, oh, I'm a sinner. Oh, I am a sinner. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is bad, but holy. The law is holy, and the commandment holy and just, and what? 
good. Has then that what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, the law helps you to see sin and to see it as worse than you thought it was and to really say, oh my goodness, that is awful. That it might become exceedingly sinful. Does the law make you more sinful? No. But it helps you to see your own sin and to sense it and to own it and to feel it. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh... Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us by your grace to understand everything you want us to understand from your word. Help us to know everything that you have declared is true about us. What you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. To set us free from slavery to sin. But help us not to make a misstep in proclaiming or deciding to live out things that have not happened yet. Lord, help us to get all the good we can from this passage, not in an academic way that we can joust and debate with other people, but, Lord, in a way that impacts the way we live, in a way that impacts tomorrow at the office, tomorrow on that campus, tomorrow in the gym, tomorrow in the neighborhood. Oh, God, help us to clearly see and understand our present condition, that we might draw draw on all the resources you've given us to fight the good fight of faith and to finish well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This section of scripture, and we're going to stay here for a couple weeks now, this section of scripture breaks down into two big pieces, two big parts. In verses 7 to 13, I believe what Paul is doing is he is describing, in verses 7 to 13, how the law exposes our sin and kills us. And it's Paul's explanation of how the law works in our lives as unbelievers. How the law works in our lives as unbelievers. And you'll note in verses 7 to 13, all of his verb tenses are in the past tense, past tense, past tense. 
Then in verses 14 to 25, Paul takes up the very same theme and in a sense goes over the same ground all over again. How the law exposes sin in us and kills us, but this time he's going to describe it in terms of his own personal experience right now as a believer. And you'll notice in verses 14 to 25, present tense verbs, present tense verbs, present tense verbs. You see, verse 7 to 13, Paul tells us how it works. How does the law work? In verses 14 to 25, Paul tells us how it feels. See, verses 14 to 25 are actually a very personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. It's a spiritual autobiography, if you will, of what does this feel like right now today as a believer seeking to live for the glory of God with remaining sin, with indwelling sin that I still have to contend with. And it's a shockingly candid testimony from the Apostle Paul of how he himself still struggles with sin, even after all the glorious truth that he's declared in Romans chapter 6, that when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're not captive to sin. You're not under law, but under grace. All that's true. He's not discounting that. But in the Christian life, it's not just helpful to understand what has been done for you. It's also very helpful to understand what has not yet been completely accomplished. Otherwise, you'll start, either you'll start to live in the land of make-believe and try to pretend things, or you'll just give up altogether and say, what is wrong with me? Maybe it's just me. Don't you love how Satan does that? Doesn't he do that to you often? He does to me. It's just you. It's just you. You're the only one that struggles like this. You're the only one that still has this. It's just you. It's just... There's a great danger, yes, that we would not understand what God has done for us in Christ in Romans 6 to set us free... But there's a great danger if Paul would not be honest and say, because see, there's a sense that sometimes I'm so glad that God, the scriptures are as honest as they are and as real as they are, like, like David's adultery with Bathsheba. To me, it's one, of the, it's one of the evidences this is the word of God, inspired revelation from God, because if a group of people decided to put together a book to fool everybody and call it the religious book, you'd leave that out. The sweet psalmist of Israel committed adultery. Well, let's not tell anybody that. The Apostle Paul, who just declared all these glorious things in Romans 6 about when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. Is going to go on and say he struggles like this? Hallelujah. Yes. Not as a license to sin. Not like, well, praise God, David committed adultery. And praise God, Paul still struggles so much. So I'll just go out and sin more. That's not what it leads you to do. It's when you play around in the land of make-believe and Satan lies to you or your flesh lies to you or you decide to say, oh, I guess I just shouldn't struggle at all anymore, that after a while you will just give up and say, I guess there's something wrong with me fundamentally, and I'll just go on and do this. The ability to fight for a lifetime and to persevere to the glory of God is much greater when you understand truly what has been done and what has not happened yet, and you don't misstep and expect more than the scriptures actually teach. We need truth. John 8, 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you what? Free. Free to live for him. But you better know what is true. You've got to know what is true. And that's what Paul is doing right here. In an incredible degree, to an incredible degree, he is acknowledging it's, it's really, really personal and honest and ugly to some degree. So I want you to notice Let me show you what I just said so that you know I'm not just making this up. Verses 7 to 13, I believe, is Paul's explanation of how the law works as it exposes us and lays us low and kills us. 
And he uses past tense because I believe this description in verses 7 to 13 was what Paul experienced probably just prior to conversion, just prior to becoming a Christian. Look at the past tense verbs with me, beginning of verse 7. I would have not have known sin, past tense, except through the law. I would not have known covetousness except through the law, past tense. Verse 8, and sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, past tense. Verse 9, I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Past tense. Verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Past tense, past tense, past tense. And I believe the description he's giving probably happened just prior to his conversion, becoming a Christian, looking to Christ, trusting Christ, getting saved. In other words, Paul's not talking, listen, when I say those, that's the description of an unbeliever, verses 7 to 13. Paul's not talking about how unbelievers feel every day and live every day. They don't live convicted over their sin and torn up over their sin and laid low by their sin. He's telling us about what, what it was like when the law really came home to him. See, see, Paul's not saying, oh my goodness, I lived my whole life and then someone showed me the law of God, the commandments of God. I was like, oh my, he knew the law He trafficked in the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was in the law all the time. What he's describing is what began to happen when for the very first time, boom, it came home to him. Oh, oh, oh. Let me illustrate it to you this way. I vividly remember, we're we're coming up on 28 years of marriage now, But I vividly remember a little over 25 years ago now, this same thing happening to me in our marriage counseling. So we got marriage counseling, first two or three years of our marriage. And I don't remember many things. That's why this is outstanding. That's why, noteworthy. I don't remember last year's vacation. I mean, seriously, this always happens. She'll just start talking about something, Vicki, and she can tell I'm just like, and I'll say, was I there? She's like, yes, you were there. I'll say, did I have a good time? Yeah, you had a good time. <laughs> I mean, literally. I'm like, we'll see Lake Junaluska. Like, remember when we drove around there and that was, <sighs> I'm sure it was delightful to be with you. I do not remember. I don't know. It's scary. I remember phone numbers. I remember names. It's made me like, like my brain is like, there's only so much I can do. So I'm memorizing scripture, phone numbers, names, don't have time for vacations. You just, all that. I don't know. But I, I mean, my twin brother will say, do you remember when we were three in Ann Arbor, Michigan on the swing set behind the apartments? Are you kidding me? Three? No. So I'm not that person that remembers, but I remember this. I mean, I can see it right now as we were in marriage counseling. And I was doing all the homework. I was filling out the sheets. I was looking up the verses. I was answering the questions. I was attending the counseling sessions. I was not a rebel. I was not a no-show. I wasn't missing every other counseling session. I wasn't bucking and fighting and resisting. And I just wasn't feeling anything about it. It's just like, whatever. She's wrong. I'm right. She never had it so good. I don't hunt. I don't golf. I don't fish. I don't, you know. But internally, of course, I wasn't so stupid as to say that out loud. <laughs> But inside, right? I'm just thinking, why are we even here? I'm in seminary full-time, and I'm working at the church for $10,000 a year, and I'm doing landscaping. Give me a break. And now I'm in marriage counseling with homework. I got Greek, I got Hebrew, and now I got Wayne Mack, for goodness sake. You know? So internally, 
Outwardly, I was showing up, just thinking, please tell her everything I've tried to tell her. And maybe if you say it, she'll hear it, and we'll have a good marriage, right? I know that must just be me. No one else would approach things this way. But here's why this is significant. I mean, we've maybe had, I don't know how many sessions like that. But I remember the Saturday sitting on my Graham Johnson's tan couch that she'd given us in our mobile home, sunshine coming across my shoulder, doing my homework. I do not remember what the assignment was. And I'm glad because if I ever could, I would give it to everybody today because that was the moment that I was like, ah! But it was God, right? It wasn't that that assignment was better than any other assignment and those verses were more powerful than any other verses. But I remember that Saturday for the first time It all came home to me. I saw my name in those verses. I saw my bad attitude. I saw my selfishness, my problems, my issues. And it cut me and laid me low. The word of God and the truth of God came home to me. That's what Paul's talking about right here. That's what Paul's describing in verses 7 to 13. Oh, he knew the law from birth. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And and in a sense, what he's saying is, for the first time I saw that I'm a sinner. I call it the, oh, I am a sinner moment. I hope you know what I mean. Because I've been a pastor 28 years. I've led a small group here for 18 years. And I can't tell you how many times in our small group, someone will share the testimony that they grew up in church. They were all around church. They memorized Bible verses in Awana or whatever it might have been, Ranger Rovers or whatever, with little patches and shirts. And, but then they'll say, they'll, there'll be something like they'll say, but when I was 24 or when I was 18 or when I was, and they'll say it just like this. For the first time, I realized Say it with me. I am a sinner. And they'll punch that word, right? Had they never heard Romans 3.23? Oh, for the first time someone showed Romans 3.23 to me and I said, oh, you mean all have sinned and that's me? Ah, I'm laid low. No, they heard it, heard it, heard it, heard it. But for the first time, heard it with your name on it. Oh, I am a sinner. Not just everybody else. I, me, Brad Bigney, my sin put Christ on the cross. I was on my way to hell. I am in need of a savior. I need mercy. I fall short. I, 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 in the best of way. That pronoun no longer was, well, I know there are sinners out there. I know there are people that fall short. I know. For the first time, it came home to Paul. And Pastor Peter touched on it last week and showed us that in those verses, he says there was one commandment that God used to really get that done. Remember? It was when he read that commandment, you shall not covet. Now, the scriptures aren't teaching that's the most important of all commandments. Use that with everybody and they'll get it. It's Paul's testimony. He's just saying that's the one that did it for me because I was so focused on external outward behavior thinking I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I'm in such good shape. The Spirit of God brought home to Paul the truth of and the conviction of, yeah, but what about this? You shall not covet. Because that's a sin beneath the sin. That's an internal deal. That goes on in your heart. Your heart can just be raging with discontentment and ingratitude and I deserve better and I want, I want, I want. My desires and what I prize and what I treasure and what I chase after and what I build my world around and what I truly worship It's addressing a sin beneath the sin that very often that sin is what leads me into all kinds of other sins. But it was a heart level, root level, internal conviction of, oh, 
Oh, Paul found himself awakened to one particular sin. Let me illustrate it to you again another way. If you're here, most of us in this room, some of you haven't reached it yet, and you have that to look forward to, puberty, a season of adolescence. Now, there's all kinds of things about that season that we could talk about. If you've lived through it, and I haven't forgotten it, or if you've parented people through it, you will not forget it. But here's one of them. It's a time of intensely heightened self-consciousness. Right? I always knew I had hands. I always knew I had feet and ears and hair. I had hair then. And a face. But I'd never thought about it that much. And for the first time in my life, I was thinking. I was thinking tons about my hands. My pinky's crooked. Has anyone noticed they're crooked? They are crooked. What's everybody think about that? Every time I reach my hand out and I wave. And anything I do is like, I got a crooked pinky. <laughs> what are my ears doing? How big are they? Do they lay down? Do they stick out? What, what is everyone thinking about my ears? Is my hair behaving? What, what is, it's gone now, but it was, it was behaving. My feet, I know I have feet. And I know I walk. I've been walking since I was 13 months old. But for the first time at 14 years old, going down the hall at school, I am intensely thinking about how I'm walking and what people are thinking about how I'm walking. Are my feet pointed out? Are they in? Are my, it's awful. <laughs> right? You don't want to stay there forever. That's why it's just a season, praise God. He is a good God. That's one indication he's good. Can you imagine staying there and living that way your whole life? I was incredibly, you become incredibly conscious, conscious of things that were always there. But now you are just so overly conscious of it. That's what Paul's talking about. This Law, this commandment awakened in Paul a heightened consciousness of his covetousness. It's not like he'd never been covetous before. But the Spirit of God drove it home. It's like, oh my goodness, it's all in me. It's all over me. That's what it's talking about in verses 7 to 13. So when the law really came home to him, he found himself aroused and brought under its power so that the law triggered within him a flurry of, of all kinds of raging desires. That's the purpose and design of the law. Not to save us, but to convict us. Not to cure us, but to cut us and to kill us. Not to help us, but to hold us hostage to God's standard. And not to lift us up, but to lay us low. Because God is so punitive and malicious and he's a tyrant, and he's a despot, and he likes to see people just wallow. No, 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 no. But because God knows until you reach that point of a heightened awareness, and that moment comes for you, oh, I am a sinner, you will have no interest in a Savior, in mercy. The words mercy and grace will just fall flat on that person who hasn't come to the point yet. Oh, oh, me. When I hear the word sin, it's talking about me. That concept of a sinner is me. Depravity is me. Falling short is me. Raging desires that are so ugly that I have the potential to commit any and every sin. It's not like, why do people do? How could people? I'm amazed at people. If you're still talking that way, not a good sign. I am taken back by some of the things that go on today. But I hope I never lose sight of a quick second thought. And but for the grace of God and his restraining grace in my life and his mercy that he saved me when he did at the age I was, before I had gone any further down the path, that would be me. That would be me. That would be me. You've got to reach that point before you're even a candidate for salvation to become a Christian. 
Because you've got to see your need for a Savior and know that you need to be rescued, not so much from the world, not so much from our enemy Satan, but guess from, from yourself, from you. Paul says the law was working in his life exactly as God designed it to work. It was a floodlight on his soul that shows sin to be what it really is, something exceedingly powerful and dangerous that has, that has far greater strength than our own willpower can handle and causes us to do things we were resolved not to do. So there's verses 7 to 13 is his description of how the law works and what happened when it really came home to him. Now, he shifts gears, and you'll see it as he changes verb tenses in verse 14 to 25. His language changes as he begins to describe the same experience. But this time, he talks about it in terms of how it feels right now as a believer. So 7 to 13, past tense verbs. 14 to 25, present tense right now verbs. Look at it starting in verse 14. For we know... But I am carnal, right now, present tense. Verse 15, for what I am doing, present tense. For what I will to do, but what I hate, that I do, present tense. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law. Verse 17, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Verse 18, for I know, not I knew, I know that in me no good thing dwells. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do. Verse 21, I find then a law right now. Not I found. I find then a law right now. Evil is present with me. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of the Lord. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members. Verse 24, O wretched man that I, not was, am. Present tense. Present tense. He's talking about his own life right now as a mature believer. Now, you can disagree, and I'll go ahead and let you know there are those who disagree. I just think they're wrong. So since I'm your pastor and I get to preach this sermon, I'll tell you what I believe the passage actually teaches. But I want you to know there are those that disagree, but I also want you to know your pastor is not the first one that's ever chosen to interpret these verses this way. That would be pretty scary. When you look back through church history, if you ever find yourself saying something, you feel like, I'm the first one that ever thought of this. Wow, everyone's had it wrong until me. Usually not good. (laughs) All right? So there are those who will say verses 14 to 25 is Paul talking about before he became a Christian. So I'll tell you, they're out there. Go find them if you like. I'm not going to help you because I think they're wrong. Luther, Calvin, Augustine... J.I. Packer, John Piper, I could go on. And I know we don't want to play that game of who's on my list that says I'm right, who's on your list that says I'm wrong. Well, my list is better than your list. (laughs) My list better than your list. But these are people I respect that have been around a while. Luther, Calvin, Augustine, and even in in a contemporary sense today, J.I. Packer, John Piper. So I'm not the first to say, oh, this is a believer describing his present right now today struggle. And I think there's a reason that God gave us this. In other words, Paul cautions us that yes, even after Romans 6 and all that God has done for us in Christ to set us free, and Romans 7, 1 to 6, that you're not under the law, but under grace, he wants you to realize this right here. The war is not over yet. Has the victory been won? Stronger. 
why we sang the way we sang. The victory's been won. But that's not the same thing as saying, and so lay down arms, take off your armor, just glibly step into the world. Oh, that would be a bad thing to do. As you look at the scriptures, it's soldier, it's warfare, it's fight, it's diligence, it's vigilance. It's 1 Peter 5, 8 saying, be careful, be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a war. But get this, what he's teaching us right here in Romans 7 is your biggest enemy is not Satan on the outside, and it's not the world who will tempt you with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The only reason Satan can even hook you, and the only reason the world and what it offers even appeals to you, here's the bad news. Your own sinful flesh is still alive. Hello. Now don't say, oh, bummer. What, what happened to all that? Jesus died, I died, he rose, I rose. Yeah, all that's true. All of that is true, and you bring all of that to bear on the fact that you still have a sinful flesh that is alive to sin. But you've got all this, res- all this resource now and all this power to say no to your sinful flesh. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem is me. Long before Satan sets up any temptation, long before the world siren cries come after me with things to draw me away... The only reason I even go still and would be tempted still and fall into these things still is because my flesh is still alive to sin. You have indwelling sin. And that's what Paul wants you to know. Not to discourage you, not to say, well, that sounds like you just discounted everything you said in Romans 6. No, but it's a reality. It's a reality. Because if you don't understand this, you won't be geared up, you, don't, you won't have camo on, and you won't be ready to go into a war. When you go to that job, when you go to that gym, when you go to that campus, when you step out your front door, before you step out your front door, when you wake up interacting with your family, you still must be ready to contend with your own sinful flesh. It's going to be a battle. So the war is not over yet. We know the victory's been won. We know where this is headed. But right now, here's the way I would put it to you. Right now, we are living in, the, in a moment of the already and the not yet. We live in a moment called the already and the not yet. There's already great things that have happened. You've been ransomed. You've been redeemed. You've been filled with the Spirit. You've been given an inheritance. You're seated in the heavenlies with Christ right now. You're adopted. You're covered in a robe of ran- righteousness. You've been forgiven. But also right now, you live in a wicked world and you still have this sinful flesh that was not just eradicated. It's been disabled. It no longer owns you and rules you. But it has not been completely eradicated. That is yet coming. Hallelujah. There will be a day that you don't need to fight your sinful flesh and it will be gone. It's called heaven. It's called eternity. And it's coming sooner than you think. Paul wants you to understand the reality of where we live now. So, in the time that remains, I want to give you two warnings to keep in mind regarding your fight against sin. Two warnings. Number one, don't fool yourself that the fight is over. Don't fool yourself that the fight is over. You will still struggle with sin until Jesus comes or you die, whichever comes first. See, in chapter 6, here's what's going on now. In chapter 6... Paul tells us that we're no longer ruled by sin, right? We're not a slave to sin. There's no more chains. He's not our master. We don't have to sin. Say amen. Amen. But in chapter 7, chapter 7, he reminds us that we're not altogether free from the very presence of sin. It still dwells in you, actually, not just the world around you, in you. Doesn't rule me anymore. Chains have been broken. 
But they're still indwelling sin. In chapter 6, he tells us that sin no longer reigns in your life. It's not king. But in chapter 7, he tells us you're still going to have to contend with the sin that remains in your life. It doesn't reign, but it remains. You have some sin. You have a sin nature still yet to contend with. In chapter 6, he tells us that sin no longer characterizes the life of a believer. It doesn't characterize your life now. But chapter 7 reminds us that sin still dwells in the life of a believer and you're going to have to do battle with it. So don't forget all of chapter 6. Don't just throw it out, but bring it to bear on this battle now. See, the Christian, and if you're sitting there saying, well, Brad, then is there any difference between a believer and an unbeliever? Has anything really happened? Has anything significant really happened? Oh, yes. Listen, an unbeliever, get this, here's some of the differences. The Christian is not the same as an unbeliever. See, an unbeliever is at peace with his or her sin. They're at peace with it. They they don't get worked up over it. They don't get torn up over it like Paul's describing in these verses. Now, they'll occasionally get all worked up over some of the consequences they wish were different. But the sin itself, the fact that I'm doing this, oh, no, no, no. As long as life is working out and I'm getting what I want, the unbeliever is torn up over their sin. Is, is at war with it. The, 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 I'm sorry, the believer. The unbeliever lives in sin. For the believer, sin lives in us. Remember I've used an illustration before about the difference between a pig and a sheep? Remember? Regarding sin? Do Christians sin? Yes. But I've told you, pigs wallow, sheep stumble. Right? Do we stumble into sin? Yeah. Pigs Go down, and if they stumbled, all right, but sometimes they just dive, snort and dive. And they roll on their back, and they just snort. They take their little clefted paw, and they wave for others to get in, too. Come on, come on, it's so good. All right? If that's you as a believer, not a good sign. You can go down, but sheep don't like that all over them. They just think, I don't belong here. Now, there's times they stay down, sadly, because they're being lied to by the enemy, saying, look at you, you're pathetic, you can't even be a Christian. The fact that you arrived there, just stay there. But they don't like it. They don't like it. Unbelievers wallow. They, They live in sin. Believers have sin still in them, and they have to contend with it. So, yes, something has amazed, has happened. As much as Paul is amazed by grace in chapter 6, what he's wanting you to see is... I'm still amazed at the remaining sin that is in me as the Apostle Paul in light of all that God has done for me and revealed to me and shown to me that I still have to contend with. And I am so thankful that he, by the Spirit, was so honest. Because Satan loves to make us think you're the only one. You're the only one still struggling like this. It's just you. It's only you. You have a special problem. Fundamentally, something's wrong. It's just you. Because that kind of thinking causes you to give up. You say, Brad, wait a minute. If you, if, you, if you say this is normal, that there's going to be struggles, won't people just run out? No, 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 you won't. This kind of talk doesn't cause you to want to be a bigger, bolder sinner. It's hopeful. And you realize, thank you, Lord. Right here in this mess, I can cry out to you again for mercy, and I can get up by your grace. The righteous fall seven times and rises again. One calamity is enough to lay the wicked low. I don't have to stay here. And by God's grace, 
His power is with me. His grace is with me. That sin was already on the cross. Christ has already paid for it. God doesn't need me to wallow. He calls me to get up by his grace as his son and daughter and to take a step forward saying, here we go, God. I'm gonna fight some more. I'm gonna fight some more. And not in my own strength. You've given me everything I need for this fight. See, one of the biggest disagreements over this passage is who is talking? Who's talking in verses 14 to 25? Is this Paul, the unbeliever, before he got saved and became a Christian? Or is this Paul, the believer, a seasoned missionary who knows the Lord, has seen miracles happen, has risked his life and sacrificed for Christ and done hard things for God? Is that who's talking right now? My answer is I believe, yes, that is who is speaking in verses 14 to 25. It's not just a baby Christian. Even some want to say that. Well, this is baby Christian before you really... This is Paul the Apostle. Seasoned, mature saint. Honestly giving us his personal testimony. So that we'll be aware and alert and know it's a fight. It's a battle. The war is not over yet. And listen... This is not the only place that Paul talks this way. I've showed it to you in this series before. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. He gives us a similar, a similar statement. Galatians 5 is where you go for the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It lists the works of the flesh and it lists the fruit of the Spirit. But Galatians 5, 17 says very similar things to what Paul's saying in Romans 7 in a summary way. Galatians 5, 17 says, For the flesh, the flesh... He's talking to Christians. You still got the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit. Does the spirit of God live in you? If you're a Christian. Yes. Spirit of the living, risen, resurrected, sin conquering, death conquering Savior lives in you. Yay. But he still lives in you with a sinful flesh. Now watch what he's about to say about that sinful flesh. For the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. Does it mean you never obey God? Does it mean you never please God? Does it mean you don't have any desire to please God? No. It simply means there are going to be days that even though you do want to please God and you have a desire to please God and you hate your sin and you know your past and you don't want to be there anymore, there's a war. And there's going to be some days that you do not do what you actually want to do now. Now, this is not, don't hear me saying like pull out my wallet and now I got a Kentucky driver's license that allows me to be legal on the streets and I've got this license to sin now. Hallelujah. Romans 7, 14 to 25. That's not what he's doing. He's not giving us a license to sin. He's giving us an honest, earthy, gritty insight into a seasoned, mature believer so that you will not lose heart. So that you won't be beguiled by the enemy who would like to make you think you're the only one that still struggles like this. You're the only one that still blows it. You're the only one. Not true. Not true at all. Listen, don't hear what I'm not saying, though. Don't let this truth that there's still a war, that there's still a battle, that it's still intense, that you still have indwelling sin in a flesh to contend with, be an excuse to give up fighting and make peace with your sin. That is not what he's advocating. This is not an excuse to give up fighting. So here's a phrase I hate. Let go and let God. 
why don't you just shut up? Because that's so unbiblical, all right? Now, there's times where you're clinging to some idol. I'm not saying the phrase is never appropriate. You need to let go of it, yeah, and let God have his way. You need to surrender. There's all kinds of places for that. But most people say it when they're wanting to indicate, I don't have to do anything in the Christian life. Woo! Yeah, woo. You'll end up in some horrible places. I have to wake up every day thinking what God says versus what my feelings want. So let me touch on this too. Sometimes people still mis- mishear me and they think we're against feelings at Grace Fellowship. We are so down on feelings. I mean, don't dare breathe. You have a feeling because they'll, they'll nank you on that. Like, bam, what are you even doing thinking, talking about a feeling? We don't care about your feelings. What are you thinking? Shut up with your feelings. We don't do that. We don't do that. If someone here did it, they were wrong. What we're saying is, guess what? Your feelings are most often tied to your flesh. Hello? And so you better learn to think what is true and what God says and not follow your feelings. I'm so glad we have feelings. I'm so glad I can feel love for my wife and feel joy on a sunny day and feel delight over music and over food and over all kinds of numbers of things and feel conviction over sin and feel the friendship. So glad for feelings. But you're in for a roller coaster ride, and mark my words, you're more likely to fall into gross sin following your feelings. The Bible just says, don't let your feelings rule you. Don't follow them. Don't buy into the lie of the world. Who They so often act like, you really want to get honest? You really want true north? You really want to be true to yourself? When you, when you dig down to the foundation, you want to know, what should I do? Oh, go with your feelings. Oh, oh barf. Don't do that, okay? I don't care if it's on a little trinket. I don't care if it's in a Hallmark made for television movie. I don't care if it's a sweet moment with a mother and a daughter. It's garbage. Don't go with your feelings. Go with the truth. And every now and then, I think it's happened three times in my 51 years, my feelings align with God's truth. Yay! But on most days, my feelings are truant little children running all over the place. And I have to keep saying, whoa, 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 whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's just, whatever's lovely, whatever's pure. If there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Set my mind on things above. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I have got to get a hold of my thoughts and I've got to listen to what God says and not what I feel. That'll save you a lot of heartache right there because my feelings are most often tied to my sinful flesh. It's not ideal, but it's real. This is a reality and not just some abnormality, not just some anomaly. This is the reality of what it looks like in the Christian life. And here's the other thing it can rescue you from. The other ditch, so so often is true in theology... So often in theology, folks, the battle and and the challenge is to stay in the middle and hold to the biblical tension of what the Bible is saying and not go into either ditch. You could go into the ditch of, you know what? It doesn't matter what God says. I can do whatever I want. But there's another, and that'll lead you to hopelessness and a messed up life. But you know what? There's another ditch you can fall into if you don't understand this passage is this sense of there's there's a second blessing. There's a level to get to that's after salvation. And if you can get to that, 
you won't struggle like you struggle now. It's, it's all kinds of different names for it and different ways to talk about it. And books are written. And if you want a bestseller, do this. Because aren't we all looking for that? What is that magic bullet? What is that thing I'm missing? Because doggone it, this is hard. This is hard. What, what would make? And so someone writes and talks and has a seminar. And There's this other thing. And it might be speaking in tongues. It might be I don't know what, but... And again, don't hear me saying, I don't, I don't think any of the sign gifts have ceased. But the Bible does not teach. If you could just speak in tongues, oh, hallelujah, I wouldn't sin anymore. No, it doesn't teach that. There is not a zone or a plane to get into so that you could be sin free. There is a place. Thank you. Heaven. Hallelujah. Oh, how I long to be set free from this body of sin and to know that I would please God every moment of every day. There'd be no more angst, no more inner turmoil, no more fighting, no more guilt and shame and disappointment when I do fail and having to remind myself of truth and get back up. And all that is going to end one day. Hallelujah. It's called heaven, new heaven and new earth. And it's coming sooner than you think. So, oh, hold on. Hold on. Fight the good fight of faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 8. Even now, he said, I, I, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. He doesn't say, I have lived in the zone. And I wrote a book. No. He wrote some books. But they all tell you you need to fight. He wrote Romans. He wrote Galatians. He wrote Philippians. He wrote First Thessalonians. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me and not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Right now, it's going to be a fight, and you need to stay out of two ditches. The ditch of I can do whatever I want. Never mind what God says. There's hopelessness there, but there's hopelessness here in if I could just get the right formula, the right secret, the right book, the right something... I wouldn't sin like this. I wouldn't have this struggle anymore. I wouldn't. Uh-uh. Wesley. I appreciate a lot that Wesley did. And he started the Methodist movement, the entire Methodist denomination now. A lot of good that Wesley did. One of the worst things he did was teach perfectionism. Did you know that? He, he believed that you could, in this life, reach a point of perfectionism that you no longer sin. No more sin. Somebody's not being honest. Like, good grief. I mean, because the Bible tells you it's not just the things I do I shouldn't have done. I was sharp with my wife. I finished that sentence. I cut them off. It's internally. It's worse. It's like sins of commission and sins of omission. I'm guilty of everything I should have done yesterday that I didn't. Oh, my word. I mean, basically, to, to say that you are sinless, you'd say, I didn't do anything I shouldn't do, and I did everything I should have done that day. Just like God would have laid it out. Just like Jesus. You've got a real sin of lying and pride right off the bat there. It's like, wow. This, this is problematic. But this is what's taught. This can rescue you from either ditch. J.I. Packer, author and theologian. He was saved while at Oxford studying Latin and Greek. And on campus, this was in the 40s, on campus was this teaching of perfectionism. That there's this second crisis that you could have spiritually that would get you in the zone. Well, he bought into it. 
He tried to do it. He tried to do it. He tried to do it. And praise God, he had a sensitive enough and honest conscience that he just continually realized, I'm not sinless. I'm not. And he says it would have driven him to the brink of suicide had he not come across the writings of John Owen, which could also drive you to the brink of suicide to just understand what the man's saying. But Packer's really smart, so this helped him, and I'm glad. I own these because they look good on my shelf. But here's the good news, and he is very good. He's just very hard to read. Let me recommend to you, here's what changed Packer's life on that. He said he read these two volumes. There's a man for us. Chris Lungard read these, chewed them up, spit them out into this. Hallelujah. All right? Thank you, Chris. The enemy within. Straight talk about the power and defeat of sin. He talks about the indwelling sin that remains. And he, he, he unpacks Romans 6 and Romans 7. Very good book. We've got it in our resource center if you want to do some more thinking about this. God's not calling us to pretend that we don't sin anymore. God's calling us to fight the good fight of faith. Now as I close, I want to close by pointing out a few things in Romans 24 and 25 in the final minutes. Because my last point is don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't go out ahead and discouraged today. Paul concludes in verses 24 and 25 by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what I want to leave you with. And as I close, I want you to notice three things in those two verses that if you want to become a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you know you're not or you're not sure, or you're here and you're a Christian and you want to fight the good fight to the end and finish well, there's three things you've got to understand from those two verses. Number one, what is it? You start with, oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. The first thing Paul says, he doesn't say, if I try really hard, if I get enough accountability partners, if I really go after this, if I turn over a new leaf, I can do this. I can get my flesh under control. Nope. Oh, wretched man that I am. It's that moment I talked about, oh, I am a sinner. Have you had that moment? Has there been a time in your life, I don't care if you grew up inside the church or outside the church, I don't care if you threw a stick in the fire, shook a hand, signed a card, got baptized. Has there been a point in your life where it was driven home to you? You became horribly conscious of your own sin, not everybody else's. That's the first step. You will never be a Christian until that happens. You can be a Pharisee. You can be self-righteous. You can be religious all day long. You can serve in the church. But you could land in hell at the end of it all. Unless there's been a time where you were struck with, oh, wretched man or woman that I am. Number two, who will deliver me? Have you come to the point that you realize rescue has to come from outside of me? It's not in me. It's not what I'm about to do that's going to solve this. That rescue needs to come from somewhere else. I'm a mess. And that rescue needs to come from somewhere else. Who will deliver me? Have you reached a point where you've stopped looking at all you're doing and all of your resources and all of your plans and all your lists and all of whatever someone told you you need to do and said, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? And then thirdly, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you looked to Christ? Have you looked outside of yourself, away from you, 
In fact, your best, your best works, Isaiah says, are as what? Filthy rags. Have you looked away from you and all that you've tried to do that you think is so good and to Christ and said, oh, have mercy on me. I need a savior. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Have you come to that point in your life? Are you saved? Are you a Christian? And if you are a Christian, don't ever get over those three things. I'm a wretch. Rescue comes from outside of me. And it's Jesus who saves me, keeps me, leads me. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're not trying to just punish us. That you're not some despot that just rubs our noses in our sin and our failure. Lord, you give us an awakening an awakening and you drive home to us our sin so that we would see our need for a savior and you provided the savior you did it for us you took the beating for us god thank you thank you lord rescue everyone in this room from themselves both in that first step towards salvation and in those ongoing steps to please you and to follow you and to live for you. And may we be sheep that stumble and not pigs that wallow. And when Satan lies to us and says, look at you, look at you, look at you. A true Christian could never have done this. Lord, may we have the truth of your word resounding in our head and heart. That the righteous fall seven times yet rise again. And that you're in the business of using people with a past who struggle in the present by your grace and for your glory, and who look forward to a future of no more sin. God, we love you. Use us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.